This is John Jackson Miller, author of novels for Star Wars and Star Trek, and you're listening to The Nerd Byword. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Chris. He's Dave. He speaks German and English. I speak Spanish, English, a little bit of Klingon, but we can both talk nerdy to you. We are ready for you with another fantastic uh, interview, this time with New York Times bestselling author John Jackson Miller. He's written comics and novels for Star Wars. He's written novels for Star Trek. So you don't have to pick between the two. You can love both, nerds. Um, And we're talking to him about his brand new, just released two weeks ago, novel, Star Trek Discovery, Die Standing. But first, it's not a nerd by word episode without nerd news. And Dave is headed to the Valley of Plenty. What do you have for us, Dave? I'm going to go ahead and toss you some nerdy news. The Witcher uh, looks to be getting not one, but two different spin-offs. The streaming service announced a new six-part limited series titled The Witcher Blood Origin. Here's the official description. Set in an elven world 1200 years before the world of The Witcher, Blood Origin will tell a story lost to time, the origin of the very first Witcher and the events that led to the pivotal conjunction of the spheres when the worlds of monsters and men and elves merged to become one. Uh, Declan DeBarra will act as executive producer on this show, uh, as well as showrunner. Uh, He previously wrote The Witcher Season 1 episode of Banquets, Bastards, and Burials, and worked on shows such as The Originals. Witcher showrunner uh, Lauren Hisrich will act as an executive producer on the new project, and, of course, uh, franchise creator Andrei Sapowski will serve as a creative consultant. Now, I'm a big fan of both The Witcher books and the Netflix adaptation. Uh, I sometimes struggle to get into fantasy stories as much as I do science fiction. But The Witcher hooked me from the word go. Uh, so I'm really excited that there will be more Witcher coming, uh, including Blood Origin and then the previously announced anime prequel Nightmare of the Wolf which is rumored to focus on Geralt of Rivia's mentor, Vesemir. The only real problem I see here is that a lot of the success of the Netflix adaptation rested on the pitch-perfect portrayals of Henry Cavill as Geralt, uh, and of course all the other actors involved in this series. So without those uh, characters and those actors, uh, it seems like it'll be a little more difficult for some of these spin-offs uh, to, to hook the viewer. Still, I hope that the shows manage to capture the spirit of the franchise in such a way as to hold my interest and become wildly successful in their own right. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I'm stoked for this. Um, I watched all, what was it, eight episodes of The Witcher? I watched it all in like a, a 24-hour period. Um, so it, it, was, it was fantastic for me. And I immediately went to Xbox Game Pass and and downloaded uh, The Witcher 3, The uh, the Wild Hunt, um, 
So I'm, I'm, I'm interested, and that's the only my only exposure to the video games. Um, I'm, I'm still in progress. I have so many nerdy projects during quarantine that I'm, I'm reading comics, playing video games, reading novels, um, but I'm still in the beginning parts of, of the first novel as well. Um, but I'm super stoked. I mean, like this is, from my understanding, this is a never before told story. Um, and that could be a bit thin ice, but with Andrei Sapkowski, uh, um, you know, serving as a creative, you know, person on this uh you know he's he's directly involved i i hope it gets its full you know fruition here um i'm really interested to see like this whole elven you know part i'm, I'm a big fantasy fan lord of the rings i love it uh, I'm, I'm all here for it um and, and i'm interested to see this common thread of like humankind mankind um being this tumultuous cataclysmic thing um in in so many fantasy settings um you have it with the lord of the rings and and their their greed uh with with the one ring and then you have also in in game of thrones like the white walkers were created because of what man was doing um and now you have declan debara saying uh, what was the elven world really like before the cataclysmic arrival of the humans? So, like, what is it about mankind that keeps screwing up, uh, you know, all of these fantasy worlds? So, and, and the title as well, The Witcher Blood Origin, that just sounds cool, and I'm definitely going to want to check in. Um, I, I totally get what you're saying with, with the um, with the characters of, of, of Geralt's not being here. This is way before that. Um, Henry Cavill... Henry Henry Cavill's portrayal of this gives me hope for the DCEU going forward when he's given, you know, substantive material, um, and and it just further underlines what disservice he's been done. I uh, feel like the DC films as Superman, um, uh, but the, but the actress of Yen who plays Yennefer as well, and even like the minor uh, characters and are, are so wonderful. But but the hope that gives me for that is some of the same creative team being behind this so so I'm, I'm i'm super excited for this and i can't wait yeah i'm with you there's a lot to be excited about right now uh in the nerd world uh there's also a lot of stuff to be disappointed with quite deeply which brings us to uh your uh nerd news segment uh chris what have you got for us yeah we're getting um you know usually on on the nerd byword we like a peek behind the curtain but this is one of those times where we get a peek behind the curtain and and you're horrified at what you see um, Daredevil actor Peter Shinkoda accuses formal Marvel TV head Jeff Loeb of making anti-Asian comments. Um, there was a hashtag save Daredevil Comic Con at home panel, um, uh, which Peter Shinkoda was, was a part of. Um, Daredevil fans will know him as Nobu from uh, the Netflix series. Um, and he revealed that Loeb had instructed writers to scrap plans for a storyline that would delve deeper into Nobu's relationship with Madame Gao, uh, who uh, was brought to the screen by Wai Ching Ho. Um, and, and I'm quoting here from the Yahoo article from Margot Sapel. Uh, Jeff Loeb told the writer's room not to write for Nobu and Gao, and that it was reiterated many times by many of the writers and showrunners that he said... Nobody cares about Chinese people and Asian people. There were three previous Marvel movies, a trilogy called Blade that was made where Wesley Snipes killed 200 Asians each movie. 
Nobody gave an expletive, so don't write about Nobu and Gao, Shinkoda said, and they were forced to put their storyline and drop it. And this is this is just it turns my stomach even reading these quotes. Um not only because of the despicable, you know, portrayals and, and treatment of, of an entire group of people. Um but this is as as you dig deeper into an individual like Jeff Loeb, who, as we said off camera, is responsible for some some really monumental stuff in the nerd community. Batman: The Long Halloween, um, Spider-Man: Blue. These are big, seminal, you know, comic runs, and and being behind the television as well. The you know, Daredevil was a massive hit to where you have you know another popular hashtag was Save Daredevil. Um, and, and it's another one of those things in, in this day and age where we have to separate the art from the artist. Um, you know, the, the, the article goes on to say that he showed up in, uh, to Comic-Con in, in some Kung Fu attire that was seen as offensive. Um, and here, this one really got me as well. Uh, Peter Shinkoda went on to tweet that he and his co-star watching Ho, Madam Gao, were not even invited to the Daredevil season two premiere. He appeared in three season two episodes, including the finale, was a major part of, of the second season. Um, and he said, why was insulted? And that pissed me off a lot. We found out about the live event as it live streamed. So they, they were integral characters of this series and um, were not even invited to to be a part of any of the the press release or anything and it's just just mind-blowing and for me as as a fan of marvel and and of the marvel netflix shows it's it's just sickening to me especially because i think that that madam gao's character and watching Ho's portrayal of her is one of the best things about that entire universe that they built on Netflix. Um, this is, this is a very low bar, but the, the, one of the few things that worked about the Iron Fist series, um, was Madame Gao. She's just a screen chewer. Like she, you have to like, it's, she is one of those actors that you stop what you're doing and you pay attention when she is on screen. Um, and, and for this to come out and, and for this to be the true treatment of those two individuals and, and for Asian people at large, it's just infuriating to me. So this is the second week in a row that I'm enraged about something. Yeah, and I certainly don't want this to become the Angry Nerd podcast, but, you know, it is, it is very frustrating that those sorts of attitudes uh, continue uh, to linger, especially when it comes to people in charge of creative endeavors, uh, because ultimately, besides just being a, a, a horrible and plain wrong attitude to have towards a group of people, it's also incredibly creatively limiting, ultimately. And, and I would say uh, more Madame Gao, for example, would have been perfectly fine by me on, on any of the Netflix shows, because like you said, uh, it's a fantastic character, fantastically portrayed. It's really hard to kind of wrap my head around uh, Jeff Loeb uh, and his career, as so much of his stuff, particularly in his collaborations with Tim Sale, were were so 
uh, evocative and emotionally affecting and, and, and sensitive even in a lot of ways. And I'm thinking like Spider-Man Blue, for example, or even Superman for All Seasons, which really almost feels like it speaks to the soul. And then to hear him, uh, to hear of him saying these kinds of things, it, it's hard to, to reconcile the art with the artist. So I'm not quite sure what ultimately is going on in, in Jeff Loeb's mind. I'm I'm very I'm very troubled by the kinds of things he he's then saying uh while in charge of, of Marvel's television output basically. And it's very difficult to go back and revisit some of the things that he has written that I have always connected with and enjoyed a great deal. Yeah, um my only hope is that going forward that 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 we as as fans and the creative, you know, powers that be will learn from this and and grow. I mean, um, and that's we talked about this last week of is like diagnosing this infection and this disease for what it is and, and growing and, and admitting mistakes and, and going forward and growing um, and just like the sheer cultural appropriation of of, you know, Asian culture and like things that we admire and then you know, to treat and speak about people the way you do is just so, you know, so regrettable and, and so disgusting. And I just hope that, you know, we have Shanghai, uh, excuse me, Shang-Chi on the horizon um, in the MCU once, wh- whenever we, we get started again with this. I really hope that Marvel sees this as an opportunity to grow and as an opportunity to take their time and and you know, even take this quarantine and, and do this the right way. Um, and as far as Asian representation in, in superhero films, which are criminally underserved um, and criminally misportrayed. So I just hope this can be a growth opportunity going forward. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I, w- I would love to see Shang-Chi being on, on the level of something like Black Panther, something that, that, that actually does justice um and, and and really show some good representation in in the superhero movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, bringing in the Mandarin and and all all the things that come in with that are are hopefully, you know, going to to add to that as well. All right, ladies and gents, that wraps up our nerd news segment. When we return from our first break, we're going to sit down with John Jackson Miller, author of Star Trek Discovery: Die Standing, a brand new novel. Stick around. Welcome back, noble nerds and ladies, to the Nerd by Word podcast. We are here with yet another fantastic interview for you. Uh, New York Times bestselling author John Jackson Miller is here. You know him from his work on the Star Wars comic books and novels. Uh, He also works on Star Trek novels, the latest of which is Star Trek Discovery, Die Standing. Um, Tells of the story of Emperor Philippa Giorgio of the Terran Empire. John, thank you so much for stopping by the show today. Hey, glad to be here. We'd love to start at the beginning. Every nerd loves a good origin story. In fact, that was our first episode. We took the whole uh, time together to to tell about where our nerd origin story began. So what first got you interested in writing? Well, uh, I've drawn and written my own comics uh, basically since I started collecting comics at age six. So uh, I've, I've sort of had my own little... Uh, you know, I've got folders, uh, a whole file cabinet full of uh, of the 
uh, many comics that I used to draw. And then later uh, in high school, uh, I was part of the small press uh, wave. This is back before web comics. People would uh, photocopy their uh, their comics and send them around to other people. Um, and, uh, you know, also, of course, in there, I was a, a, a fan of science fiction. Uh, I watched the Star Trek TV show, of course, uh, in reruns. Uh, and uh, the Star Wars movies, the kind of the first grown-up comic book I ever got was uh, Star Wars number one, the very first uh, you know Marvel adaptation issue back uh, I think it was nine years old at the time. Anyway, uh, so you know Star Wars and Star Trek, uh, you know, wax and wane uh, through my you know childhood and teenage years in terms of what's uh, what's you know becoming more important or less important in the pop culture uh you know star wars goes away for a while but then uh star trek gets next generation uh and uh, and the movies and everything and uh all of this ends up uh you know culminating uh in uh in my professional life uh i was the uh you know editor of my high school newspaper went on to be the editor of my college newspaper uh and uh, after a few uh side trips to uh other places in academia i uh, ended up working uh, as an editor for a trade magazine, uh, got hired as the editor of the trade magazine for the comics industry in 1993. Uh, comics Retailer was the name of the magazine. Comics Buyer's Guide uh, was our sister magazine, uh, the, the newspaper that I had been reading for years and years and years. Uh, and so I got to work on that and learn from uh, Don and Maggie Thompson, who were the editors of CBG. Uh, and then when Don passed, uh, you know, Maggie was, was sort of my mentor, uh, for, uh, for the business. Uh, and, uh, I did that for uh, a good, uh, you know, almost a decade, uh, also edited other magazines that we had like Scry, the card game magazine. Uh, and so of course that was something where I was, you know, getting involved with, uh, you know, not just the Star Wars comics, but the Star Wars games and the Star Trek games and the everything else that was was out there. Um, and uh, I, somewhere in the early 2000s, uh, I got a chance to uh, you know pitch a uh, a storyline of Marvel, and uh, that ended up becoming uh, the uh, Crimson Dynamo comic series. Uh, Crimson Dynamo being a uh, an Iron Man villain. Uh, that was a mini series that led to me getting to write a year on Iron Man, uh, which is pretty much significant, uh, mainly because it introduced a number of characters that would show up in the movies later on, uh, including, uh, the, the villain from, uh, one of the villains from, uh, the Ant-Man, the Wasp movie. Uh, and so that, that was kind of cool because they, they brought me and my wife and, uh, and also the artist up from Argentina, uh, to, uh, to that premiere. So that was really cool. Uh, but, you know, that, you know, Iron Man opened the door to working at Star Wars, uh, Star Wars comics for Dark Horse. Uh, you know, once you've done Star Wars comics, that kind of opens you up to working for the games and also uh, for uh, for fiction. And, uh, you know, I then, I then started writing uh, prose books for Del Rey, uh, the uh, Lost Tribe of the Sith short stories. That leads to the Knight Errant uh, series of uh, comics and uh, and the novel that I wrote uh, you know, for Star Wars as well. Uh, and then you know we go on to uh, freestanding novels like uh, Kenobi and uh, A New Dawn. 
uh, Star Trek becomes available at that point. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I've now written six Star Trek novels. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I've, I've been keeping my passport stamped with all these different universes. <laughs> absolutely. Now I'm absolutely fascinated by, um, uh, a, a, a sort of a side branch of some of the work you're doing. Uh, in one of our episodes, we were talking specifically about how we can improve sales in the comic book industry. And when I was doing research, I came across the website Comicron and uh, cited that extensively. Um, what got you interested in in sort of doing uh, work with that website in uh, comic book circulation history and that kind of research? Uh, you know, I was an obsessive compulsive record keeper as a kid, uh, as a collector. <laughs> I've got I've got a big notebook here that has you know, where I recorded every comic book that I got in high school and where I bought it from. And, and uh, you know, I was tracking, you know, what comic shop I bought from, bought from the most or, you know, how, much, how many I bought at conventions and, uh, you know, how many of what, uh, what publishing company. Um, when I got to Comics Retailer Magazine, uh, the industry was actually uh, coming down from uh, its all-time high. Uh, we had kind of a bubble market in the business. Uh, in the early 90s. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it we had this collapse going on and I was running this business magazine. So I was having to keep all kinds of records uh, uh, about what was happening then. Uh, and, uh, and you know, also there was a period where uh, you could only get uh, the Marvel comics from the distributor that Marvel owns. So it was not possible to build a sales chart with everybody in it. Um, I did some work so that that was possible to do again, uh, and uh, that led to me doing monthly sales charts, which ran uh, unbroken from September of 96 uh, to March of 2020. And <laughs> it's interrupted only by uh, you know, the pandemic, uh, although I am, you know, to, just before this, uh, this podcast today, I've, I've worked several hours on on reconstructing what has happened in the last few months where there hasn't been uh, data available. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I, I, I put this material out uh, on Comicron because, uh, you know, I want people both to understand the, the, you know, the health of the business, the scope of the business, the size of the business, you know, our, our year in 2019 was, was our best since that period in the early nineties. It was, it was very, very good. Um, but also I do it because uh, I want to try to protect uh, collectors uh, to some degree uh, against, uh, you know, some of what caused that crash in the early 90s. Part of it was caused by uh, the fact that people did not know how rare things actually were. And so uh, you've had a lot of people who were you know, buying mountains of comic books, thinking they were going to fund their college education with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it turned out that those were books where, you know, there were a million copies of them. So, uh, you know, that, that, those numbers were not easily findable uh, before, uh, you know, sites like mine. And on that topic of, of comic book sales and everything, uh, we spent an entire episode coming up with three big strategies apiece on how to drive sales and, and improve uh, the comic book industry um, from an economic standpoint. Um, and I know that 2019 was a good year, but do you have any strategies um, that pop off the top of your head at this time 
uh, to help people continue that positive momentum or bounce back from a pandemic like this? Well, that's the thing is the is you know the comics industry was fine through the middle of March. Um, you know there are always there are always areas that could be doing better, uh, but uh, in terms of you know were we producing enough uh, or you know, were enough people buying the periodicals to guarantee there would still be periodicals uh, and and thus also guarantee there would still be graphic novels in the stores because graphic novels are mostly just you know, collected editions of periodicals. Uh, yeah, absolutely, that was the case. Uh, it, you know, through the end of March, uh, we we were having a, a, a very good start to 2020. Um, we did not cause this problem. Nothing about our product in 2020, uh, you know, caused the position that we're in now. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is, uh, you, know, you know, kind of my saying about this is, uh, you know, if, if we didn't cause it, we're probably not going to be able to fix it uh, on our own. Uh, this is something that came from outside. Uh, and, you know, it, it has been the case that the retailers that have been uh, operating are, you know, doing so, doing the best they can uh, under uh, conditions that are, uh, you know, uh, give vary greatly from store to store, from city to city, to, from state to state. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, they've been able to take advantage of some, uh, you know, financial help from, uh, from the government. Uh, they need a lot more, uh, and it's not just that they need a lot more. It's really that everybody needs a lot more. It's all retail that needs the help. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be something where, uh, you know, it, it will be some time before we will know what normal looks like. Uh, and so, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, we, we've kind of gone from, uh, a, a, you know, the, 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 the kind of questions that you would ask, uh, you know, six months ago, how can we help comics sell better or reach more people, uh, are, are different questions now. Uh, now it's how can we get our comics to the people who want to buy them, uh, that we already have, they are, our, our, our current audience. How do we get those people to be able to get those books? Uh, and uh, and in in many cases there are obstacles which uh, you know just don't have anything to do with uh, you know with the what's within the power of uh, of the stores or uh, or uh, the publishers. The 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 industry, uh, as Will Eisner used to put it, has nearly died three times. Uh, you know my the way I always uh, follow that up with is each time we invented a way out of it, we did something brand new to get out of it. Um, in uh, in the 1950s, uh, when television basically destroyed comics as a mass medium, uh, and uh, and uh, you also had the you know the comics code and everything, uh, what uh, what we did to innovate our way out of it was uh, to basically uh, focus on one portion of the audience, uh, you know, teenage boys uh, with superhero comics. Uh, we, and that is, and that is, that's what we did. And that caused comics to flourish again in the sixties, the silver age of comics. Um, in, uh, the, uh, in the seventies, we were nearly collapsing again because the newsstand distribution system, uh, was, uh, was going to heck. It was, it was, it was falling apart. Uh, you know, places that used to sell comics didn't want to sell them anymore. 
Uh, well, we innovated our way out of it by collectors starting their own retail stores uh, and publishers selling directly to those stores. Um, and uh, and then in uh, in the 90s, after that crash uh, happened, uh, when things were falling apart again, uh, you know what what uh, what happened? We invented uh, this, and it had been around, but we didn't focus on it. Uh, we we took the graphic novel, the collected edition, and we realized, hey, this is our way to get back into bookstores. This is our way to make money off of everything we've ever published uh, by putting all of those old back issues that people used to have to hunt for uh, into collected editions. Uh, and, you know, over the course of the first part of this decade, uh, or the first part of the century, rather, uh, you know, a lot of the rebound in comics was fueled by, you know, trade paperbacks coming out with everything that had ever been printed. So, uh, you know, we, we now have a, a, a new challenge. And uh, the question is, is this going to be something uh, that uh, that will uh, innovate our way out of on our own? Or is it going to be something so much bigger, it's going to require the whole economy to be fixed? And I've tended to think uh, it's more on the whole economy. Uh, it, it's not that people suddenly stopped wanting comic books in print. They still want them. They just don't have any money uh, because we've got, you know, 30 million unemployed or we have stores where people can act, actually, you know, uh, you can't get five, more than five people in the store at once or something like that. Uh, you know, there there are stores that, uh, yeah, there, it's not like there's just you know one kind of comic shop. There are there are two thousand different models for comic shops out there, and uh, everyone is different. There are ones that are dependent upon uh, in-store gaming, uh, and that's not going to come back uh, anytime soon. Uh, you know, so it, it, basically, it really what the situation is depends on who you are and where you're at, uh, and uh, it it will be a while before it all comes back at the same time. Now, just to change gears for a second, um, we'd love to talk a little bit about Star Wars since you have spent so much time uh, in that particular universe. Um, what to you is the appeal of telling new stories in the Star Wars universe? What what keeps you still going with that? What keeps you interested? What keeps it fresh for you? Well, the idea behind tie-in stories, uh, you, know, you know, the idea that, that the tie-in novel, the very first one was, uh, uh, I believe, was back in the 1930s for the Lone Ranger radio show. Uh, and the guy that actually created that uh, series wrote the novels. And the whole idea was, you know, here's, here, can we make a little bit more money with this stuff? Uh, and also, um, you know, is there a way, particularly for movies and TV shows, for the kids, uh, the people who love this property, to continue to enjoy it, uh, even when they're not in the theater or, uh, you know, the, the TV, TV season is over or something like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's true that when I started buying Star Wars comics that were, you know, original stories by Archie Goodwin or, or one of the other creators uh, that Marvel put out, um, you know, that was, that was the only way to enjoy Star Wars for several years there. Uh, because, uh, you know, we didn't have VCRs. We didn't have, uh, or at least I didn't have a VCR at the time. Uh, yeah, the 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 idea of um, you know getting to relive that experience was going to have to happen secondhand through something else. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, you know, it just sort of uh, it came about that you know, Star Wars and Star Trek as well uh, ended up being the standard bearers for science fiction in comics. Uh, and they also ended up being some of the you know, best science fiction being written in prose as well. Uh, those early Star Trek novels that came out in the 80s, the ones that all had numbers on the spines, uh, it's it's not well known that a lot of those novels, which were by famous science fiction authors, uh, were not originally proposed as Star Trek novels. Uh, they they were originally just going to be regular novels, and uh, Pocket Books said, hey, can you, can you rewrite it as a Star Trek novel? <laughs> because we know there's a built-in audience there of people who want that entertainment. People who want those kind of stories, and and so you know, I guess I, I kind of I kind of uh, you know I I I I enjoy working uh, with these franchises the same way that I enjoyed reading things in those franchises. Uh, you know, it, these are these are you know uh, you know characters that we all know about uh, that we can all hear in our heads, uh, and uh, you know it's it's sort of a way of of doing things. I mean the uh, the uh, you know, we we didn't get to see what happened to Obi Wan Kenobi on the first month on Tatooine, uh, but we've got uh, we've got my book, we've got my audio book as well, uh, uh, based on that. Uh, and uh, you know, there's there's just all these uh, different you know, ways that we can expand on uh, the stories in in these franchises. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm you know been I've been uh, honored to be able to be a part of it. Now, Star Wars famously is one of the most divisive fandoms uh, in pop culture, um, and you need look no further than the Star Wars prequels for uh, you know a source of that derision. Uh, and Dave and I just spent three episodes, uh, quote unquote, fixing the Star Wars prequels. Um, what's your take on the prequels? You know, obviously they're they're what George wanted to do, and whatever George wanted to do, he's free to do it. Uh, it and and it's. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, the creator doesn't have to tell the story that I want him to tell, uh, the crea and, and it's the same with my own books. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I have to say that, yeah, there, you know, a prequel sets up a challenge for you and that you already know where certain characters are going to wind up. And so it, everything then becomes about the how and, uh, and the why and, uh, and, you know, sort of the style, the way you do it in. Um, you know, I, I, I think my dream uh, for the prequels would have been uh, to basically, uh, you know, people say, uh, you know, when they got the machete version, they chop off the first film. Uh, well, I would go deeper than that. I actually would uh, make the third movie the whole trilogy uh, and uh, basically start that year. And, uh, and, uh, because there's that much material, there's a lot of material there. Uh, but you know, uh, you know, George wanted to tell the story of Anakin as a child. George wanted to tell the story of, uh, of Anakin, uh, you know, growing up, you know, you wouldn't be able to tell the same sorts of, uh, you know, things about him. And, and of course it also wouldn't have allowed for the big range of things they've been able to do in the Clone Wars, uh, in the cartoon series. So, yeah, I mean it's it's uh it's always challenging when people know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, I've had to deal with that. Uh, Knights of the Old Republic, my uh, my comic series. You know, uh, we know that there's this looming threat of what happens in the video games. 
uh, but we're a good ways away from it uh, yet uh, when when I'm doing it. Uh, you know, certainly Star Trek, uh, my last two novels, The Enterprise War and Die Standing, uh, they fit into specific time frames where, uh, you know, the the in both cases the main characters have to be somewhere uh, <laughs> in the second season of Discovery. Uh, and, and almost at the same time, actually. Uh, and so in both cases, um, you know, it's, it's more about, uh, you know, how can I surprise you with what happens to them in, in that time period? Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. that prequels in general and, and in between quals would be extremely difficult to write. Um, I wanted to take a moment and latch onto your, uh, novel Kenobi a little bit, uh, Writing a novel about Obi-Wan's exile on Tatooine uh, is a really interesting proposition. How did that come about, and, and what did, was it like to kind of dig into Kenobi settling in, into Tatooine? Well, that actually began as a graphic novel. It was going to be a, a comic book uh, for the uh, yeah, Dark Horse was uh, about to celebrate, I think, its 20th anniversary, uh, so it would have been 2007. Uh, I had proposed this thing in 2006, literally with the uh, description line, uh, the Ben Kenobi Western. That was what I had put in the, uh, in the email message. Uh, and I went through three different drafts of it, each one getting successively longer and longer and longer. And um, by the time uh, my editor switched to the Indiana Jones office and gave me the Indiana Jones movie to write instead, uh, or actually to write the, the adaptation for instead. Uh, by that point, uh, we had both missed the 20th anniversary, and uh, also my plot was way too long to ever fit into uh, into a, a you know a 96 page comic book graphic novel. Uh, and so uh, I put it on the shelf, and it came about that uh, you know they were looking for um, novels in 2012 uh, that you know, brought back uh, or focused on the main characters. Uh, and I uh, I dusted that off the shelf and uh, did not have to make a whole lot of changes. Uh, and uh, and uh, it turned out that it fit really well uh, in comics format, or not in comics, but in, in novel format. Uh, and, uh, you know, sort of the rest is history. Now, in the novel, Kenobi, um, you told the story not from Obi-Wan's point of view, but from the point of view of the people he encountered. Uh, what made you decide to go in that type of direction? Well, it was always going to be like that in the comic book too, uh, but it was uh, it w- it would have been more challenging to pull off. Um, I, I think part of what I wanted to do is uh, make our time with Obi Wan more valuable. Um, you know, one of the things that I learned at the very beginning was that a little Darth Vader goes a long way. Uh, a little, uh, a little of each of these major characters goes a long way, uh, and you don't want to have them in every scene doing something. Uh, uh, Spock kind of works the same way in Star Trek, uh, where you want to use them, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, carefully. Uh, and uh, and so uh, I, I think you know, the, doing it in prose made it easier to tell that kind of story. Uh, my editor suggested, you know, I had just one sequence with the meditation originally. She said, let's do a lot more meditations to actually give, uh, you know, give him uh, time to um, like time in the middle of the book where he could talk directly to the reader. 
uh, because again, the reader knows everything that's happened uh, in the rest of the galaxy. The reader actually knows more about what's happened than Obi Wan does. Um, you know, the reader knows Darth Vader is still alive. Obi Wan doesn't even know that at this point. Um, and uh, you know, I, I thought that the idea of having other people, uh, you know, evaluating him and showing how they reacted to him, uh, I, I thought that would be very interesting. Uh, it was certainly uh, a risk. Um, you know, in uh, in the first draft, uh, Obi Wan doesn't appear until sixty pages in, and uh, we said, well, let's put a let's at least put a prologue in there where he could appear, uh, but we could also kind of you know get the get the reader ready for the notion that this is not going to be your usual kind of book, uh, that this is you know this is going to be a a a book where you know there's there's no lightsaber fights, there's no uh, there's no uh, no space battles. Uh, this is more about you know, he is the mysterious stranger who wanders into town trying to escape a past, uh, and uh, you know that's 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 a very very Western trope. For many years, uh, the torch of Star Wars was really carried by by people like you uh, who were working in the expanded universe, and so much of what people today understand about Star Wars. Uh, has at least some kind of roots in the expanded universe, for example, you know, the planet Coruscant. Um, so when Disney bought Star Wars and it decided to wipe the slate clean, uh, you as an author who has uh, actually contributed to the expanded universe, how, how did you feel about that decision? Well, I ended up writing the first novel uh, in sort of the uh, this Lucasfilm story group era. That was the the New Dawn novel. Uh, and I was two thirds of the way through writing the novel because it was a, a novel that would be a prequel to the Rebels TV series. Uh, I was two thirds of the way through when I, I was told, uh, okay, yeah, we're going to, um, yeah, we, we, we're, we're going to make this change. We're going to call everything previous to this legends. And by the way, you know, we're going to fly you and Timothy Zahn out to, uh, to Hollywood, uh, not to Hollywood, but to, uh, to Lucasfilm, uh, in San Francisco to do a video about it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the way that it's described uh, is really, really more the case. Instead of wiping the slate clean, what they've done uh, is they've said that a legend is something which might be true in part, in whole, or not at all. Uh, it is it is something that uh, is out there to draw upon if we need to draw upon it, uh, and if it makes sense to draw upon it. Um, I kind of look at all the previous works as being the same as what uh what Timothy Zahn was given when he started the Heir to the Empire novels he was given the West End role playing game uh he was given all the source books for it uh because uh they had already you know come up with all this stuff uh names of planets and things uh and and he drew upon it uh, you're writing a new adventure just like a role playing you know game master uh writing a writing a role playing game uh, well, I kind of look at the legend stuff like that too. Uh, is you know that these are all source books that we can draw from. It's not necessarily the case that they're all you know correct or true or whatever. Uh, you know the fact that we bring in one character from something doesn't you know deem it all uh, you know canonical or whatever. But I mean you know I've I've now done two stories bringing in characters from the Kenobi novel. Uh, because I, I've, uh, I, the short story I did for, uh, the, uh, certain point of view book for, uh, for, uh, you know, Star Wars, 
uh, that brought in a Yark, my character from uh, Kenobi, the the San, the San, uh, the uh, Tuscan Raider. Uh, and then we uh, then we had in the Canto Bite uh, novella I did, uh, I brought back uh, Mosep Benid, who dates back not only through, uh, you know, Kenobi, where he's job as accountant, uh, but he goes all the way back to the very first, uh, you know, Marvel Comics uh, story arc, uh, because he was he was originally going to be Jabba in the comics until they decided that Jabba would be this big slug guy. So <laughs> that's that's a, that's a character with a lot of a lot of very strange backstory. Now, there's even been talk about a Kenobi series coming to Disney Plus. Do you hope the show takes some inspiration from your novel, or that they go in a different direction? What are your hopes for that? They can do uh, whatever they want. Uh, they they own it all. Uh, <laughs> I will I will say that um, you know the decisions that I made um, were right for me, and uh, I do not rule out that there are other ways to tell his story. Um, you know, in my thinking, uh, Obi Wan Kenobi is best when he is a hermit, when he is on Tatooine, and when he does not leave. Um, you know, they had some, uh, they had some children's, uh, novels, uh, where, uh, and this is in the Legends era, uh, where Obi-Wan was traveling around doing things. Um, you know, I kind of felt like, you know, that, that's, that's not how I would do it because I think it lessens his, uh, exile. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, this is, uh, the, the joke I, 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 I say is, you know, um, Andy Dufresne and Red do not get to you know, run off to Boston on the weekends for Shawshank Prison. They've got to actually stay there uh, for for their time there to mean anything uh, uh, or to mean what it does. Uh, and so, you know, I I, I figure, uh, you know, as as Obi Wan says, um, you know, he, you know, he's he's not the new hope. He's he's the hope that failed. He's got one job now, and his job is to take care of Luke. Now, uh, to switch gears again, uh, you've also written several Star Trek novels, we've mentioned this several times, uh, including your newest book, Star Trek Discovery Die Standing. Um, what can you tell us a little bit about the thought process going into writing this particular book about this particular character at that particular moment in her journey? Um, oddly, I have realized that uh, there are parallels to the Kenobi novel. Um Obi-Wan Kenobi had been at the bright center of the universe, and now suddenly he's living uh, in the hinterlands. Uh, he had uh, he had been a part of things, and suddenly he is not. Uh, he's lost everything, uh, and you know he 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 blames himself for uh, for what's happened, even though it wasn't necessarily his fault. Uh, you know, with uh, Emperor Giorgio in in uh, the mirror universe in in Star Trek. Uh, this is a character who has lost more than anybody has ever controlled, uh, more than anybody has ever owned. Uh, you know, she she owned the entire you know, known universe at the time uh, that uh, that her uh, you know that her rule was uh, you know, summarily ended uh, with the events that we see uh, in that first season of Discovery, and you know she has to flee as a refugee to uh, what she would consider to be Tatooine. Uh, our universe, uh, and so that's uh, and so that's where she is. And of course, the difference is, uh, yeah, obviously one of them has a much darker perspective. But the 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 question that they both face is, how do I continue being the person I was? 
how do I continue doing the things I knew how to do uh, in this new place? Um, in Kenobi's uh, situation, he 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 has to learn to give up being a Jedi because he cannot uh, do all the things he used to do, but he can do some things on the margins. He can do some things carefully uh, and basically, you know, act not as Superman, but act as Clark Kent uh, when he can. Uh, in in her case, uh, you know, her immediate you know reaction is is to reject this new situation and to try to regain what she had. Uh, and uh, that was what I felt would be her uh, her arc in this book all along is, you know. Somebody like this doesn't just go to work for somebody else, uh, whether it's Section Thirty or th Section Thirty One or anything else. If she did agree to work for them, it would be with the ulterior motive that she thinks it'll make escaping easier, or she thinks she'll find something that's going to help her, uh, you know, reconquer this universe, uh, and uh, it'll be easier this time because our universe is uh, is. Uh, you know, very trusting and and not very uh, not not like the mirror universe at all. Well, uh, and that and that's what happens, and that's that's our plot is she she discovers something in our universe that eluded her in hers, and it's a weapon, and she thinks that if she gets a hold of it, uh, it will it will change her destiny. But uh, you know, the course of this novel takes her on an odyssey, uh, you know, towards seeing that you know, maybe that's not what she wants anymore. Now, I have to say your cast for this novel is probably the most surprising thing about Die Standing. Uh, first and foremost, it focuses on the mirror universe or evil version of Philippa Giorgio. Um, that's always been a personal favorite of mine, alternate universes, you know, Thomas Wayne being Batman in Flashpoint, um, you know, Spider-Verse, multiple different versions of, of Spider characters. Um, how did you approach writing an evil character as a protagonist um, and like the opposite of Star Trek proper Philippa Giorgio, who's a consummate Federation officer? What's your approach on that? Well, you know, one of the things that is necessary to do in any kind of uh, alternate universe uh, situation is you need to know when things split off. And so, for example, in the movies, you've got the Kelvin universe. Uh, everything changes when, uh, you know, in Star Trek. Uh, the movie, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, you have the disaster aboard the Kelvin. Uh, but everything before that uh, is is a common thing. Uh, I needed to find out, uh, you know, with this thing, uh, exactly when things split. And what I found out was, uh, and, you know, as a fan, I had always assumed, uh, like a lot of people I think did, that the best place to have done that you know, breaking point uh, would have been uh, City on the Edge of Forever, Edith Keeler, uh, you know, if she lives, that's the universe that would have been created, uh, the fascistic universe that, uh, you know, that Spock sees when he's looking at the future record tapes, uh, you know, that, that would have been, um, you know, that would have been a place to have it from. However, uh, they had a show called Enterprise, and they had a little fun with it, uh, where they not only showed us that first contact was different, so that takes it, uh, you know, at least to at least to uh, the you know after the Third World War, uh, but 
then they have the opening sequence where they show more or less that the history has always been this way. Uh, there are multiple references in uh, that Enterprise two-parter to Shakespeare and various other characters from the distant past. Uh, and we realize that, okay, this has been the situation for a very long time. These people are just different. And um, and their world has been different for a very long time. And so, um, you know, I, I got to, even though my book does not spend a lot of time in the Mirror Universe, I talk a lot about, you know, the culture that she was coping with beforehand. Uh, you know, what things, things like what life insurance meant uh, in, in her universe. It was a different thing. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, li life insurance was, was insurance to prevent, uh, insurance just in case your children did not conquer the galaxy or you're, you didn't conquer the galaxy in case your life was wasted. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it, 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 in a sense, I had been prepped for writing it because I did that, uh, that, uh, Lost Tribe of the Sith, uh, thing for Star Wars, where everybody in it was Sith, so everybody in it was nasty and, and everything, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed, you know, doing it, and, and, and also, you know, getting to, you know, because, yeah, people like reading about characters who know things. People like reading about characters who know how to do things. Uh, you know, she's very skilled at everything she does. Uh, and, you know, I, I put her, uh, in, uh, a, a series where, you know, the, the people she's up against, uh, or, or with at any one point in time, uh, you range from, um, you know, people who really don't know much of anything, <laughs> like uh, like uh, like one of her henchmen in this book, uh, and 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 then we've got a character like Quintilian who can go, you know, uh, you know, beat her, you know, uh, reference for reference when it comes to historical figures, uh, and uh, and so you know, I think that uh, it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting place to spend some time for a year. Now, you also brought in two characters that, at least just from looking at the cover, I did not expect to find in a Discovery novel at all. The first was Dax, an earlier incarnation of Dax from Deep Space Nine. And then, uh, the, sort of the big surprise, of course, was Sean Finnegan, who was basically just a one-off character from the original series. H how did you settle on using these specific characters and pairing them with Emperor Giorgio? Um, those actually were suggested to me uh, as as characters I could use if I wanted to, uh, the, because everything here, you know, I was in conversation with both uh, my editor Margaret Clark and also uh, Kirsten Beyer at the uh, Discovery Writers Room, uh, and then also Dayton Ward, uh, who is sort of a go-between uh, these days. Uh, you know, I it, it was determined after my first draft. Uh, of the plot, not not the novel itself, that you know we had wanted to get some name characters in there, uh, but we didn't know who was available, and though they were on the list of who was available, and uh, I it, it occurred to me that um, they would they would be very good for uh, traveling companions for Giorgio, but both because um, you know they they they're just wildly different from her. Uh, Dax is the conscience that she doesn't have, uh, and Finnegan is uh, is just unbridled id and joy and 
you know, poor decision making. Uh, he's, he's he's all of this, uh, and uh, and they also both represent you know characters who are dealing with loss in the same uh, you know just as she is. They're they're dealing with it in different ways though. I mean, uh, you know, Dax uh, comes from a people uh, whose entire uh, life cycle. Uh, is about starting over. Uh, you 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 live a life, you begin again. You live a life, you begin again uh, with the same memories. Uh, and and they they live for it. Uh, that's it's what they want. Um, starting over is not uh, is is not a bad thing for them. Uh, and then Finnegan, uh, you know, there's uh, <laughs> there's we don't actually quote it, but. And we 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 won't quote it directly, but there's there's a there's a there's a uh, there's a there's a reference to a Chumbawamba song in there. Uh, I I I get knocked down, but I get up again. This is what he does. It, he is he's a brawler. He takes it on the chin constantly. He's 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 hit in the face multiple times in this book. Uh, but also, you know, he's somebody who's been thrown out of Starfleet and brought back in, thrown out of Starfleet, brought back in. And he just and he's fine with it because, you know, that's all good. <laughs> Let's go again. All right. Uh, and and so, yeah, I think he's uh, I think he's uh, I think he's an interesting character for her to confront because he is not somebody who wallows in uh, in despair, in loss, in anything. Um, although we do hit him with uh, some some rough patches for him in the book. Uh, it's uh, it's not the case that uh, that he ever gives up and uh, and she doesn't either. Die Standing is a Discovery novel, uh, and some Star Trek fans have been vocal online that Discovery is quote unquote not their Star Trek. Um, what are your, what are your feelings about that type of sentiment? Well, they don't own Star Trek <laughs> <laughs> any more than I do, or 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 anybody else, unless uh, they're a stockholder uh, in. Uh, in the CBS Corporation, um, uh, look, we all have our favorites. We all have our head cannon, uh, but that head cannon can be challenged. I mean, for me, Rocky Four and Rocky Five never existed in my universe <laughs> because I felt that Apollo Creed lived, and I and you know Rocky Five. Eh. Uh, well, you know now uh, with the Creed movies. Rocky Four can be in there again. Uh so so Rocky Four is back in my head canon. Uh five is still not. Uh, but <laughs> the, the less the less said about five the better. Well, but it, it but it's but I mean this is this is the case. I mean, you know, um you know, I prefer my aliens to have stopped with the second movie. Uh but uh, if I were to take a job uh you know doing aliens, I would have to I would have to deal with it. Now now I will say I would be less likely to, and I have not to this point taken that you know that that job. Not that one's been offered, but I mean it's. It, you know, I I think it's it's really hard to fake enthusiasm. Um, you know it's uh, it's you know I've done uh, I've done video game comics as well uh, for I think three different franchises, uh, none of which you know where I was really in the uh, in the gaming audience. I mean I I you know I. I well, Knights of the Old Republic was different because I, you know, both read the 
read the previous Knights of the Old Republic comics. I played that game, and then also, uh, you know, I just knew Star Wars. Um, you know, I've I've not you know, pursued much more with uh, with Mass Effect or with Halo, uh, for example. Uh, just because, uh, in both cases, uh, I'm not hard, I'm not a hardcore player of those games. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, the kind of games I play, I, I don't know that there are going to be any novels or, or comics, uh, <laughs> about, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm, I've got thousands of hours on civilization going. Oh, a map. A man after my own heart. <laughs> well, going back all the way to Civilization One, and and actually the Avalon Hill board game, long before that, uh, where a lot of the ideas from uh, from the you know Civilization come from. Uh, but uh, and and then lately, I've uh, I've been playing American Truck Simulator, so I've been driving a I've been I've been driving a a, a Peterbilt truck all around the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> uh, just because I can't get out of the house. Uh, so. <laughs> But I really don't know, uh, you know, what uh, what uh, what fiction is going to come from that. Now, having dealt with two big franchises like that, Star Trek and Star Wars, what to you is the elemental difference between those two things, and and the big difference in writing for those two different franchises? Well, I mean, uh, clearly there are stories that will work in Star Trek that won't work in Star Wars, and vice versa. Uh, you know, Star Wars is space fantasy; it's space opera. Uh, Star Trek, uh, you know, aspires to be science fiction to a degree. Uh, so at least the pseudoscience is there to obey certain rules, and um, you know, you've got to get it right. Uh, you know, I go through a lot of work uh, on Star Trek to make the pseudoscience uh, work properly. I pay attention to things like the map. Uh, I've got the I've got the map of uh, the Alpha and Beta quadrants on my on 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 opposite walls here in my office, uh, so you know people are not just popping from one planet on one side to the other. Uh, you know that 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 doesn't work. Um, and uh, you know I obey a lot of things about how uh, you know how transporters work and how shielding works and. Uh, what's where within the hull of the Enterprise, uh, and uh, and what things you know this this came up a lot in the Enterprise War novel. Uh, what stuff still works if you if you uh, separate the saucer uh, from everything else? Uh, you know, do your transporters still work? All you know, stuff like that. Uh, and so, you know, you wouldn't want to write a Star Wars novel that wallows in that kind of stuff uh, or gets real deep uh, into. You know anything like that? I mean, you know, you, uh, we 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 use we use you know gobbledygook phrases like uh, you know check the Nava computer coordinates for the hyperdrive, but we don't go any deeper than that. Um, but then you know, on the other hand, uh, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek, uh, you know, Star Wars, you know, you've got uh, a a much more uh, you know cosmopolitan galaxy. This is a galaxy that is already fully settled and already fully explored. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a galaxy that's been lived in. Uh, and so, you know, Star Wars is less about exploration. It's less about, you know, who, who can live in this, uh, who lives on this planet in this time frame? Well, no, everybody lives on this planet in this time frame. It's just a, it's a different kind of story, different approach. When writing stories for corporate-owned properties like Star Wars or um, Mass Effect, even Star Trek, 
Um, how much freedom do you have to tell your own story? I know you hinted at this previously with uh, going back and forth with the writer's room, but what kind of limitations, for example, did you face when writing Kenobi or Die Standing even? They're mostly laid out at the beginning in terms of, you know, this is where you can set the story or this is this is this is what you need to worry about running into. Um, and, you know, as as a general rule, uh, I was told, you know, before I even started writing Star Wars comics uh, by my editor, Randy Stradley, he said, when you define, you can find when you create a fact just to create a fact. It's something that everybody else has to worry about uh, that follows you. Uh, and, you know, you don't want to do anything where you say, you know, nobody has ever been to this planet before, uh, because that ruins it for anybody who sets a story before that, uh, and wants to go to that planet. Uh, so, you know, I try to mind the footprint that I'm working within. Uh, I try to be cautious not to close off any avenues for other storytellers, uh, because it's possible that, you know, the, the door I close might, uh, might be one I'll need to open myself later on. That's that's very interesting. So, what's next uh, for you? Any upcoming novels or comics that you can tease for the audience? Uh, the next book that's out uh, in November, uh, I am part of the, uh, I mentioned the previous book earlier, uh, the From a Certain Point of View hardcover we are doing uh, for The Empire Strikes Back's 40th anniversary. I'm one of the authors in that. Uh, and I am not allowed to say what, uh, what I'm writing about, but, uh, <laughs> every one of these things is, um, based on, uh, a character or scene or something that we see in the movie. Uh, and, uh, I can tell you that, uh, people who like the way that I approached my story in, uh, in the, the one for Star Wars, uh, will find that I have, uh, have gotten to have. Uh, some fun with this one as well. Uh, and uh, otherwise, I've been doing a lot of work on Comicron, uh, you know, I, and not just the present day, uh, but uh, where you know there's so much to try to study. Uh, but I've uh, I've put in you know just weeks and weeks during the pandemic uh, doing uh, estimates on comics in the 1960s, uh, and uh, you know the hope is that I'll be able to uh, publish something that's going to have uh, you know, things that we never really had before, uh, like sales charts from back then. Um, and, uh, and you know, we've always had sort of an idea what, what sold. Uh, I, I've been able to actually discover, uh, you know, some real things, uh, you know, patterns that, that we probably didn't. You know, a lot of people are going to look at this and be surprised. Well, that's definitely something to look forward to. Now, John, every week we give out nerd commendations, things that we're reading or things that we're enjoying and, and being such a large part of, you know, comic book sales and, and the comic book industry, um, uh, you know, large part of geekdom, if you will. Um, is there anything you're reading or enjoying right now that you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, I've been rereading Sandman. Uh, I realized it was 20 years since I've read any of that. And so I've, I've been reading, I've been rereading Sandman from the beginning uh, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, it's interesting because when I read it beforehand, I had not worked as a writer. Uh, and, um, you know, now I, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm approaching it, looking at all the technical things that he did, uh, that Neil Gaiman did. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and again, wondering how he was able to come up with this stuff because he's, he was much younger than I am now when he, uh, when he was writing that material. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm, 
I'm also, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had so much other stuff to do that I've been playing catch up. So, uh, I, and I can like catch up on one series at a time. So, uh, right now I'm about 10 years behind in a, a, a fun little comic book called Knights of the Dinner Table. Uh, I've, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, only to uh, like issue 148, and I've got another 120 to go <laughs> before I catch up. Uh, but uh, again, my reading time is limited, and you would have thought that I would have had a lot of time during the pandemic. But uh, but yeah, those are the, those are the series that uh, that I've been uh, going through. And it, again, uh, you know, Knights at the Dinner Table is kind of funny because it's 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 very much uh, you know critical role before its time. Uh, whatever that, you know, that the, you know, the thing is where the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Dungeons and Dragons players are on YouTube just, uh, uh, running their own, their own universe. Well, that's, that's kind of what that is in, in comic book format. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm about, to, about 15 years into that. I got another 10 to go. John, we thank you so much for your time. Um, and thanks for, for being a part of the show. Uh, is there anywhere on social media or the internet at large that our fans can, and, find you and and continue following your work sure thing uh my website is farawaypress.com uh on twitter i am jjm faraway uh on facebook uh it's john jackson miller uh and then uh, also my comicron website comichron.com uh that uh, comicron also gets you to uh my uh twitter account for that my facebook account for that and my patreon Again, thank you so much, John. Uh, thanks for being part of this show. We really appreciate this. Hey, thanks very much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up our interview with John Jackson Miller. Be sure to check out Star Trek Discovery, Die Standing, available wherever you get books, whether it's an audio book, uh, an ebook, or or hardcover as well. When we return from our second break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations for this week. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are at the end of another episode with two more nerd commendations for you. Dave, what do you have for us? I got something a little out of the ordinary this time that I want to talk about. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about one Jeremy Parrish's YouTube channel. Uh, Jeremy Parrish has been a games journalist for quite a while. Uh, he's worked for US Gamer, IGN, 1UP, Electronic Gaming Monthly, Retro Magazine, the official PlayStation Magazine, and several other publications. Uh, he's also written several books about video games, and he also is a podcast host himself and hosts the Retronauts podcast. Uh, but I'm not really wanting to talk so much about the podcast and more about my absolute favorite Jeremy Parrish project. It's his works series on YouTube. In these series of videos, he attempts to play every game released for a particular platform in the order in which they were released. He has started series on the Nintendo Game Boy, the NES, the Super NES, and the Nintendo 64. Each video focuses on only one or two games, contains extensive research about the history of the game and its development, and then analyzes the design and gameplay of those games. I find these videos almost almost addictive. Uh, much of what he is uh, covering with these videos are the consoles I grew up with. And I constantly am learning about games I didn't know about or history of, of games that I did play that I didn't know about their background. 
what blows my mind in particular is that this channel on YouTube only has 53,000 subscribers. It, it seems to be a, a very small channel in the annals of gaming YouTube channels. And, and that's really odd. Uh, I think any fan of retro video games and gaming history would enjoy these videos. So I highly recommend the channel. Parrish is doing great work here, and even though it seems highly unlikely he'll ever finish these series, considering how many games he's dealing with, the journey so far has been super informative and fun. This is fantastic, not only um, from a video gaming aspect, but like as a, a history nerd's aspect. It's almost like I'm, I'm looking at the channel right now, and it's just like a, a glimpse back in time, and, and you can't help but to think like where you were when these games were released, and, and you know... Um, it's so memorable, and, and the nostalgia is strong here, so I'm definitely going to have to check this out. I'm not very active on YouTube, if I'm being honest. Uh, my exposure to YouTube is usually movie trailers and then uh, walkthroughs to other video games if I'm stuck on a particular level. So I'm going to have to expound on my, my YouTube um, you know, use here. Oh, um, or like, you know, fix-it-yourself home videos on my honeydew list. You know, that'll... Uh, if I have to learn how to install a heating element in a dryer, I, I, I have to dabble in that as well. Um, when when during quarantine, I think you and I both had to be amateur plumbers, um, so to speak. Yeah, it's pre pretty disgusting work if you're dealing with the wrong kind of pipe. Um, I, it just blows my mind that Parrish only has 53,000 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, th this channel is probably one of my favorites and and I actually do spend a lot of time uh, watching content creators on YouTube and, and I keep coming back to these works videos because they're just so fascinating so I hope um, maybe this shout out helps some people uh, discover this channel uh, if you're into gaming this is one of my favorites how about you Chris what is your nerd commendation for this week um, I'm going a little bit out there in left field for mine. Um, I mentioned earlier, we're both history nerds. Um, I'm recommending the Marco Polo series on Netflix. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention that this recommendation does not come with certain apprehensions. It was produced between a joint partnership with Netflix and the Weinstein Company. Um, so, you know, that gives me a little bit of ickiness in this recommendation, but I feel like so many other elements of this show far outweigh that association. Um, and the number one thing, even though this is probably, you know, categorized as historical fiction, probably not how everything went down. It's hard to say when you're, you know, dealing with something, you know, in the, in the 13th century and 14th century. Um, the, I'm also, I'm a nerd about a lot of things. I'm also a nerd about theater and acting. And I I absolutely love strong acting performances. And for such a an underwhelming performance-wise show, a show that was canceled midway through its second season, and you can tell, that's one of my criticisms of this show, in the second uh, the tail end, the last couple of episodes in the second season, you could tell that they had been canceled and they were trying to wrap it up very quickly. Um, so it goes under the radar a lot and it is not heavily advertised on, on Netflix um, for one reason or another. But, but the acting performances um, in this show are just absolutely spellbinding. 
Um, and I and I wanted to kind of bookend this. I opened with such a negative story about um, the discrimination of you know Asian characters and Asian people, and I wanted to end this episode in contrast on a high note on on some fantastic you know representation of the Asian community and and Asian actors. Um, my favorite, absolute favorite actor in this series is Benedict Wong's uh, Kublai Khan. Um, and this and this this uh, two season series tells the story of Marco Polo in the court of Kublai Khan, and Benedict Wong as Kublai Khan is an absolute revelation. You know him as Wong from you know Doctor Strange in the MCU. Uh, that's his most notable role to to mainstream U.S. audiences, but he as Kublai Khan is just fascinating to watch. Um, it's it's everything um also some other notable actors um that you'll probably recognize as nerds uh remy high um was brad from spider-man far from home the one who is competing for mj's affections um he is crown prince jingham uh kubla khan's eldest son and he's fantastic in that as well uh mahesh jadu as well um fantastic actor he is one of Kublai Khan's adopted sons, and and you'll recognize him as Vilgefortz um, in the latter uh, episodes of season one of The Witcher. Just fantastic actor, absolute scene chewer. Dude knows what he's doing. Um, Tom Wu as Hundred Eyes as the blind monk um, who trains uh, Marco Polo in, in in the martial arts. He's fantastic. Um, and Claudia Kim as Princess Kutalun is fantastic. And then. You know, to tie this entire episode together, we we featured um, Star Trek Discovery, Die Standing, which centers around uh, Emperor Philippa Giorgio. And Philippa Giorgio herself, Michelle Yeoh, is also in this series as Lotus, as this assassin. And she is incredible. Everything that Michelle Yeoh does, whether it's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon whether it is Star Trek Discovery, whether it is Marco Polo, anything that she's in, you have to tune in. You have to watch. She is incredible. Um, so I highly recommend this series. It's it's a real interesting peek behind the curtain, so to speak, of, of what the Kublai Khan dynasty was. I, I really appreciate like the authentic cultural representation of Mongolian culture and what it was like traveling in those nomadic things. So if you're a history nerd, you know, whether or not it lines up factually, who cares? Just to see those things represented on screen was fascinating. And then the acting performances just bring it home. So Marco Polo on Netflix is my nerd commendation for this week. Uh, this one was a tough one for me to see on your list. Series and movies based on history are very challenging for me to watch. Uh, Somebody who spent so much time extensively studying history, I totally understand that storytellers have to take certain liberties with the facts to tell a compelling story, but it is so distracting for me when they do while I'm watching something. It, it, it's a huge challenge. Um, I don't think my wife particularly enjoys watching anything based on history with me because I'm basically sitting there correcting the facts the whole time. Um, still, you know, so much of, of what is fiction in movies and stuff that, that is supposed to be historical but is highly fictionalized ends up somehow getting accepted by the general public uh, as actual historical fact, and then I find myself just more frustrated than entertained. 
Now, based on this recommendation, I'm willing to give it a shot. I mean, I'll, I will watch Michelle Yeoh uh, read the uh, read the phone book for 30 minutes. I mean, she's just mesmerizing actress. So uh, here's something interesting, though, and something I wanted to ask you about this recommendation. The first season got some incredibly bad reviews. And when I looked it up, it only stood at a 34% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 44 reviews. Do you think that's a fair assessment of the show? I, I don't, I don't particularly say uh, agree with that. Um, I will say, um, I don't feel particularly strong in endorsing Lorenzo Riquelme's. You know, it, it's hard to say. Like, I recommend the show without the title character being super strong. He's okay for me. He's not the strength. Um, I, I will say, watching. Benedict Wong and Michelle Yeoh particularly, and she's in a super minor role, but Benedict Wong and Tom Wu as Kubla Khan and Hundred Eyes respectively are, are worth the price of admission, if you will. Um, but, you know, I could I could see where some of that, you know, and maybe, you know, for whatever reason, people didn't vibe with that. But, but for just from the perspective of appreciating good dramatic acting performances, that was enough for me. Well, then I'm definitely going to give this a look. It sounds like uh, a winner then. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up another week and another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for tuning in. We thank you so much for your support. Um, we are available wherever you get your podcasts, whether that is Apple Podcasts, whether that's Spotify, TuneIn, or our website, nerdbyword.com. Um, if, you, if you don't mind, please leave us a, a review and a five-star rating. Um, let us know how we're doing, uh, what you'd like to see in the future. Uh, things that you enjoy about the show. Um, but thanks again for tuning in. Uh, remember, we're also uh, available on social media uh, as uh, Nerd by Word, at Nerd by Word. Uh, and we're also on there individually uh, as at That Nerd Chris and That Nerd Dave. And we'd uh, love to hear from you on social media as well. And uh, just let us know how we're doing and what we can do to improve the show or any suggestions you have for potential big talk topics. We absolutely have some fantastic con, uh, content coming your way in the in the next few weeks. Um, but also make sure that you're subscribed to the show, whether that is on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or even on our website, nerdbyword.com. We had our very first giveaway for uh, celebrating 750 Instagram followers. So um, congratulations to Scott Wild Baptist there um, for winning the, the Secret Wars variant cover uh, comic. Um, as we continue to approach, you know, follower milestones, we're going to continue to do that. And the first step into winning those prizes um, and that cool swag is to make sure that you're subscribed and, and listening to the pod. So uh, make sure that you're doing so. And, and, and thanks again, guys. And stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is produced by two nerds, Chris and Dave, to encompass all aspects of the nerd multiverse. The theme music was written by Al Jimenez. Our show art features original art by Ashby Design, as well as public domain comic panels. Find us online at nerdbyword.com, on Twitter at nerdbyword, and send questions and comments to nerdbyword at gmail.com.